Hello and welcome. This is Dr. Kelly for History 311. Uh, doing the next part of our series on the Great Depression and World War II. Uh, right now we're going to be focusing on World War II. Uh, I could very easily call this part one of the civil rights movement. Um, an overarching thing you need to think about for World War II is how it is, in essence, the dress rehearsal for the later civil rights movement. A lot of the same tactics, actors, even some of the same organizations are going to be involved in both the civil rights movement and World War II. Now, last class, we talked about the Great Depression and how the Great Depression is pretty, pretty god-awful for African-Americans. Uh, they suffer in disproportionately high numbers because of the Great Depression. Uh, banks and other institutions, they aren't really coming together. Uh, they, they fail in much higher numbers because of the Great Depression. And African-Americans are much more likely <coughs> to have unemployment during the Great Depression as well. Now, in the midst of this, World War II is about to happen. Open up your PowerPoint. You're going to see, basically, racial segregation was being practiced in World War II by the U.S. military, but also African-Americans are getting the opportunity to be in much more advanced and more direct combat roles. Uh, for instance, something like the Tuskegee Airmen, as you can see right there, uh, they're flying airplanes, which is about as complex as military machinery gets during this time period. So the eve of war, 1936-1941, uh, fairly straightforward here. Fascist governments take over Italy and Germany. Um, that's not too surprising there. Uh, Mussolini had been over Italy for quite a while, even though Italy still technically had a king, uh, Mussolini was the prime minister, pretty much a dictator of Italy, promising a return to the Roman Empire, and Hitler, ha Hitler had Germany. Adolf Hitler uh, becomes chancellor of Germany. He, too, also brings in his fascist-style government to the German people. Uh, the core beliefs of pretty much all these, of all these fascist governments, uh, there is definitely an element of racism, definitely an element of white supremacy, uh, racial superiority of its individuals, uh, for instance, Mussolini begins by uh, trying to conquer Ethiopia, saying that he's going to bring a return to the Roman Empire by conquering territory, specifically Ethiopia, which was the one country in all of Africa not to be colonized. And Hitler, I don't really have to tell you what Hitler says about racial, racial superiority and white supremacy. You know that very well. Uh, targeting people like the Jews, but also anybody who's not considered Aryan. But they're also very much anti-communist. That's something you may not be too familiar with, is that these are very anti-communist governments. Um, Hitler and Mussolini both demand that basically they're the only ones who can save their country from a communist takeover. And the reason they're going to do that is because communists are bad, and that's what they really bring in. This idea that the country needs to be strong and very militaristic to take out the communists. Now, also, these countries have very aggressive foreign policy. Uh, Italy pretty much takes on Ethiopia, and they kind of foots around North Africa. They're not too important for that. Uh, Germany gets very involved in expanding its land, uh, first by things like the Rhineland, the Sudetenland, Czechoslovakia, uh, finally ending up by invading Poland, which is how uh, World War II begins in Europe. Meanwhile, they have an alliance with Japan, uh, Japan is not under a fascist government. It's, it's still under an imperial ship by this time period. Uh, however, you do have a more, much more expansionist prime minister, somebody like Hideki Tojo. And just basically their government is... They're really trying to struggle for um, their place in the sun. 
That's what I would say about Japan during this time period. They feel that they're slighted by all the Western powers. Uh, they feel that they are equal to any other Western power, uh, yet they get totally disrespected. They're not able to take over land. And so basically Japan takes over Manchuria, which is a province in northeastern China, uh, a territory that Japan had had its eyes on for quite a while. They also take over Korea. They also take over Korea. Now, this is not too important for African-American history, but just in world history in general, uh, the Japanese are known to be very brutal, particularly in Korea and also in Manchuria and China. Uh, that's the reason why there's a lot of anti-Japanese sentiment around Korea to this day. Uh, the U.S. at first is very much uh, wanting to stay out of the war. They stay isolationist. Uh, you know, we, we see what's going on in China. We see what's going on in, uh, in Europe. And we're like, well, thank God it's not us. Still, there's definitely a sense that Hitler is not good news. Uh, the United States, they don't really fear an invasion by Hitler. Um, there's really no realistic evidence of that ever happening. But still, they realize that Hitler is bad news. Uh, if Hitler takes over Europe... That's not good for the U.S. in the long run, just for trading purposes, and, I mean, he's Hitler, for God's sake. Do I have to defend why Hitler's a bad idea? Uh, the U.S. does get involved into the war, though, more directly because of Pearl Harbor, which is when the Japanese attack uh, Hawaii. Uh, I should mention during this time period, Hawaii is not a state. Hawaii is just a territory under this during this time period. Uh, still, the Japanese attack Pearl Harbor. This gets the United States very upset. Uh, then Germany declares war on the U.S. shortly thereafter. So if you go over one slide, uh, African-Americans, though, they are kind of in the mix in all this. These are much larger uh, universal trends going on in the world in this time period. Still, there's a growing black um, support going on. There's a lot more black activists getting involved, particularly when it comes to Ethiopia. Now, as I mentioned, uh, Italy invades Ethiopia in 1935. They invade Ethiopia in 1935 pretty much because it is the one African country they can invade without upsetting a European power. Uh, Italy does not have the best military during this time period, and so they're trying to go for something, you know, easy, quote-unquote. Uh, Ethiopia, it's no slouch. I mean, Ethiopia has taken over quite a bit of territory on its own. In fact, that's one of the reasons why it was never imperialized by Europe. It's because it was capable of taking over other African countries. However, the Ethiopian army, which is like, you know, rifles and horses, cannot take on the Italian army, which is airplanes and tanks. In the midst of all this, uh, there is a growing sense in the Pan-African community that Italy, sorry, that Ethiopia is almost like a Wakanda. Almost like, you know, it was the one place in all of Africa that stood against imperialism, and now it's been taken over by the man, by the white man. Basically, the white man's not letting Africans have anything, not letting black folks have anything. And so there's definitely a sense that, you know, we should do something about this. This is also helped by the emperor of Ethiopia, a man by the name of Haile Selassie II, uh, Haile Selassie flees Ethiopia, he ends up in London, and he starts giving out all sorts of messages. He starts, like, recording broadcasts and telling the people of the world, hey, here's what, you know, the Italians are doing to my home country of Ethiopia. It's really horrible what they're doing. And it's generating a lot of sympathy and a lot of support for the Italian, for not the Italians, but for the Ethiopians. The problem is, Ethiopia getting there, it's kind of hard to get there. It's, it's too hot in the military sense. Um, the Ethiopians are not really mounting that much of a rebellion against the Italians, just because they know they can't. Uh, they're pretty much very subjugated. You know, somebody could, you know, fight to liberate Ethiopia, but it would be viewed as just a fool's errand. 
Uh, the thing is, though, is that Mussolini and, and Hitler, honestly, are also allied with the guy who has taken over Spain, due by the name of Franco. Uh, Franco, actually, he's not taken over Spain quite yet. He is a general uh, fighting against the nationalists, which are led by the king of Spain in Spain. And basically, Franco is having uh, leading a civil war in the country of Spain. And this is viewed by a lot of African-Americans as, you know what, it's not Ethiopia, but it will do. It's a place where we can fight against the people who are, you know, doing these horrible things in Ethiopia. Because Franco is being supported by Hitler and Mussolini. Now, the United States military, the United States at this time period, this is before we get into World War II, um, the United States says we are not going to get involved directly in the Spanish Civil War. That's a civil war. We don't want to get involved in that. Uh, that being said, though, you do have groups, some communists and socialist groups, that decide to send over uh, people to fight, volunteers. They're called the Abraham Lincoln Brigade. Uh, the Abraham Lincoln Brigade has black and white volunteers together. Like I said, a lot of these are socialists. A lot of these are communists. Uh, basically, they, are, they have decided to go to Spain to fight against the fascists, to fight against Franco and his Italian and German allies. You have about 100 black volunteers serving in this. Uh, this is also significant because even though this is not the U.S. military, this is one of the first times where you actually have black officers uh, commanding white soldiers and the white soldiers going along with it. Uh, like I said, this is not a full army. This is just a group of volunteers. Uh, meanwhile, in the midst of all this, meanwhile, in the midst of all this, as we're getting involved in the World War, uh, as people are getting more involved in World War II, A. Philip Randolph really wants to have something to change things. He sees the amount of money that is coming from the war effort. Now, I should iterate this, because uh, you're probably going to get a question on your quiz. You're more than likely going to get a question on your quiz about A. Philip Randolph and the March on Washington. Now, I think I alluded to the March on Washington before. This is the time where A. Philip Randolph really tries to do it. Right? A. Philip Randolph is trying really hard to make this March on Washington happen. Um, now, there is a movement beforehand I should mention called the Double V Campaign. The Double V Campaign... Uh, comes from the Pittsburgh Courier, which is an African-American newspaper with national distribution, like the Chicago Defender or something. Uh, basically, they, they announced that, you know, we're going to have a double V campaign. The two victories. Two victories. Victory at home against uh, racism. Victory abroad against fascism. Basically, they want to link uh, the war effort with civil rights. This is a big organizing factor for what later becomes the civil rights movement. The type of techniques used in the Double V campaign are used chapter and verse by the civil rights movement. Pretty much the only difference between the Double V campaign and the civil rights movement is the civil rights movement is much more religious in nature. The Double V campaign, not very religious in nature. It's more secular. Still, the Double V campaign is trying very hard to link the war effort with civil rights. Basically say, African-Americans, we need to show that we're good Americans, that we support the war effort. You know, we're going to buy war bonds. We want to volunteer to fight. You know, if we can show that we're good soldiers, we're good Americans, we're going to earn the respect of the rest of America. Now, there's also the issue of money. The issue of money. Because wars cost money. If you've ever had a class with me, you've heard me say that and preach it a million times. Wars cost money. 
You know, it costs a ton of money to fight a war. And all of a sudden, the federal government is in the business of providing these big, fat, lucrative government contracts to get things built for the war effort. All sorts of things. Military equipment, all sorts of factories, shipyards. Um, food is being, you know, made. Um, uniforms are being made. Medicines are being made. Tanks are being made. Everything is being made for the war effort. This is a very big, high-money thing that the U.S. government is trying to put together. And so when these companies get these big, fat contracts, they're promised to do a lot of things. You know, use union labor, if at all possible. Uh, the unions are, are very clear about how they want to be involved in this process. They want to show they're good Americans, too. Now, it's actually kind of interesting because these companies, like these big contracts, like the government is always somebody good to have as a client because the government can usually pay their bills because they're the ones who print the money. And so these companies are getting these massive contracts that can hire you know, tens of thousands of people for huge, big money, salary. I mean, this is what ends the Great Depression. And the problem is most of these companies that get these big money contracts turn around and not hire black workers. In fact, many of these factories would not hire black workers, period, let alone after they get a big money contract. Now, this upsets a lot of people. The NAACP and a lot of organizations start doing various rallies. They start doing various things, basically trying to convince the federal government, make it mandatory that they cannot discriminate against black workers when hiring. The problem is FDR would not meet with them. Franklin Roosevelt, for all this talk of being like, hey, I'm going to do something for black voters, you know, what a black vote, you know, hey, black voters, what have the Republican Party done for you in the past 70 years? Nothing. Uh, trying to talk to this growing, you know, post Great Migration black population, which is, you know, they do vote, they're having a bit more money. And now, you know, since they've suffered so much because of the Great Depression, they feel, in, not entitled, but they feel, you know what, we should have a fair chance to. Uh, and A. Philip Randolph is definitely a part of this. So A. Philip Randolph, he really is, you know, yes, he's part of the Brotherhood of Sleeping Car Porters, but he's also the main union guy in general. He's been an organizer for black labor for quite a while now. He's, he, he lives forever. He's strongly active in about like five or six different decades. And basically, he decides, you know what, we need to group everybody together, we need to get all these different groups together, and we need to do something about this discrimination. We need to do something about all this discrimination, see what happens here, you know, get rid of the discrimination, particularly in hiring practices. That's the main demand of the March on Washington, is they want anybody who gets a government contract not be allowed to discriminate in workers. They say, if you get a federal government contract, you should have to be able to hire everybody. You have to hire everybody. Uh, likewise, uh, you know, no more race-based exclusions on military training. Uh, there are certain military things. If you're a specialist, you generally get paid more. It's higher prestige. Uh, a lot of these specialist programs would not train black soldiers. They claim that black soldiers were too stupid or something like that. Maybe they were not mentally capable of handling this. Uh, basically, A. Philip Randolph also wants to have black soldiers have the opportunity to serve anywhere they can. Uh, likewise, if anybody works on an army base, or if anybody that uh, you know is is uh, 
you know, hiring workers to work on army bases. Because remember, it's not just soldiers on army bases. There's a lot of civilians. They also have to be hired on a non-racial basis pretty much across the board. Uh, in addition, they want to get rid of segregation in the military. They want to get, a, get rid of segregation in the military. Uh, the military, as I've mentioned before, is quite segregated with certain different military branches uh, straight up not allowing black members. Uh, the Marine Corps is probably the most famous for uh, just not allowing black members. Uh, same thing for like the, the Air Corps. The Air Force is not a separate uh, military group in this time period. Uh, the Air Force is still part of the Army in this time period, and the Army would not allow black people to become pilots. Uh, another thing A. Philip Randolph does, which is kind of interesting, is he says, you know what, I don't want to get white people involved with this. We want this to look like a completely black thing, because he's like, you know what, if white people get involved, they're going to become the spokespeople. Now, to get this done, what he wants is he wants a march on Washington. He wants to, he's like, you know what, I, I've got some contacts. I, I know people, you know, in all these different unions. I've got contacts throughout the black world, throughout the African-American world. I want to have a march on Washington, all right? In January of 41, so, you know, sorry, in 42, it's where it really starts getting much bigger. Uh, in 41, they know a war's coming. They don't know exactly, they don't know exactly when. But as this is going on, A. Philip Randolph is demanding, hey, you know what? How are we going to get this done? We're going to have a massive march on Washington, you know, around the National Mall. I'm going to get at least 100,000 black men and he wants it to be black men because he's like, that's going to look best. 100,000 black men to protest to FDR about, hey, you promised us all sorts of stuff for getting us, you know, for getting you elected president. You screwed us over during the New Deal. You're not going to screw us over in this war. We need to have a chance to make something happen. So A. Philip Randolph is making plans for a march on Washington, National Mall, Reflecting Pool, Lincoln Memorial, all that stuff. Get 100,000 black men out there to march. Now, I bet you're wondering right now, wait a minute, that sounds really familiar. I thought that happened in the 60s, though. I thought that was Dr. King, 63, I Have a Dream. Are you telling me this actually happened in the 40s? Well, I'm here to tell you it didn't happen in the 40s because just the threat of the march, just the threat of just this bad PR, of this very bad-looking, um, you know, bad look for FDR, is enough for FDR to do something about it. What FDR does is he meets with A. Philip Randolph, and he's like, guys, what do y'all want me to do? A. Philip Randolph lists his demands, and then you get, if you go over one slide, Executive Order 8802, or 8802. This is an executive order, so it doesn't have to go through Congress, because it would have never passed Congress. It outlaws discrimination in any company that gets one of those defense contracts. If a company gets a big, fat, big old fat defense contract, a government contract, they cannot discriminate in workers. Basically, the federal government is now saying if the federal government gives you money, you cannot say it has to be white people only. It could be anybody. You, know, you have to hire everybody if you get a big, fat government contract. Uh, to basically to make sure that it gets uh, compliance, the, FE, the FEPC is done. The Fair Employment Practices Committee is made basically to investigate this. It actually gives it some teeth. Basically, companies have to be in compliance or else they could be shut down. And uh, I, I should also mention what it doesn't say. It doesn't say anything about the military. It, it doesn't because the president's like, that's the Department of Defense and I don't want to screw with morale. 
Likewise, it says nothing about unions. Uh, unions theoretically can hire whoever, sorry, can house whoever they want. And if unions want to be racist, there's really nothing he can do about it. However, he can do something about the defense contracts. This is the first time since Reconstruction that the federal government has done something to protect civil rights. And it's kind of noticing a, 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 a sea change within the perception of what the federal government's responsibility is. Basically, the federal government is now admitting, you know what, we have a responsibility to protect black and minority rights. You know, just an employment, yeah, but it's, this is a beachhead. This is something that the civil rights movement can lean upon. And this is like the, kind of the bedrock of the later civil rights movement because it gets results. Like, the idea of a march or a protest having an immediate result. And by the way, I should mention, even though a lot of companies in the South, like, don't do this, uh, most companies do. Most companies across the nation do. Um, famously in New Orleans, Higgins. The Higgins boats, you, you might know them from D-Day. Uh, that's where the World War II Museum is nowadays. He actually does hire black and white people and pays them equally. Uh, but, for, in, for instance, in places like Los Angeles... Uh, there's a massive migration of African-Americans to Los Angeles because of the shipyards there. And now that they are hiring black people and they're paying them the exact same as white people because it's a big fat government contract, uh, there's a huge migration of people to Los Angeles. Uh, does this become an issue later on? Yeah, the Watts riots, but also gangster. Like, Af uh, Los Angeles does not have like, a long-term uh, black population in places like South Central before World War II. Now, let's talk about what actually happens in the military. Uh, once that a black person is drafted, and by the way, black people are drafted just as much as anybody else, uh, they're generally assigned to segregated units, uh, which are primarily non-combat, uh, non-combat roles. Now, for some of you, you're like, that sounds awesome. You know, there's no chance of me fighting or being killed in the war. However, as part of the Double V campaign, uh, they're really pushing, the Double V campaign is pushing African-Americans to try to get a combat role. Uh, combat roles are generally much more high prestige. You generally get a better discharge. There's preferences, and um, you know, it's more prestige, preferences. You get a higher pay. I should mention that, too. Uh, and also, um, for a black person to become an officer in this time period, it's very difficult. It's very difficult. I'm not saying there are no black officers, but by God, they have a lot of problems. They have a lot of problems uh, just in general. Uh, are there African-Americans in the military? Not really, if you go over one slide. Uh, honestly, the American War Colleges does a study in 1925 that's kind of seen as the bedrock of the military uh, justifying why they're being discriminatory. Uh, basically, it stated, quote, that African-Americans were physically unqualified for combat duty. Uh, why? Well, they said they're naturally subservient and mentally inferior. Uh, that's racism. Uh, no self-control in the face of danger. They said basically... You know, if a, if a black person was under any immediate danger, they might just fall out or do something that's destructive. And finally, they say they have less initiative, they're less resourceful than white people. Now, all of these are 100% racist. All of these are 100% untrue. Yet that's what the military does to justify what they want to believe in the first place, which is keep guns out of the hands of white people. Uh, black people. Black people. Uh, the War Department policies as we get into World War II, like I said, segregate black soldiers, have them serve in non-combat units, and really ignore uh, pretty much what African-Americans have done in previous wars. I mean, uh, for instance, like African-Americans had fought in World War I, Harlem Hellfighters, we talked about then. Uh, they, fought about, uh, they fought in the Spanish-American War, the uh, 
5th Negro Infantry and the 10th Negro Cavalry, they fight very valiantly in the, in the Spanish-American War. Uh, they also fight pretty valiantly in, the, in this uh, Buffalo Wars, in the, sorry, the Indian Wars, Buffalo Soldiers, and of course the Civil War. But even before that, you had black soldiers fighting the American Revolution. Uh, this war department, the, the military pretended like black people had never fought before or had never really done anything before. Uh, this is kind of uh, swayed, though, by uh, the experience of somebody like Dory Miller. Now, Dory Miller was a cook. Dory Miller was a cook on a uh, Navy ship during Pearl Harbor. Uh, he, he was a... Uh, you know, he was... Sorry, what's the word I'm looking for? He, he's a cook, uh, non-combat role, but basically during Pearl Harbor, he grabs a gun, he grabs a gun, grabs one of the big guns on the side of the, of the battleship, and basically starts uh, sinking Japanese ships. If you ever seen the Pearl Harbor movie, he was played by Cuba Gooding Jr. Uh, Dory Miller becomes a hero. Uh, he becomes like a, a real embodiment of what the Double V campaign wants African Americans to do. You know, they want them to take the initiative to, you know, don't wait for a chance to prove your bravery. Just prove it. You know, don't wait for the ability. Um, don't wait for permission to take the big gun to shoot down the Japanese. Just take the big gun and do it. Uh, Dory Miller becomes a you know an icon for a lot of African Americans. Uh, becomes viewed as a just real you know they, if you've seen the Captain America movie where they have like Captain America running around trying to sell war bonds, they do that with Dory Miller too, particularly within the African American community. Uh, sadly for Dory Miller though, he does die fairly young. Uh, his ship is blown up later on, and he does not make it. Uh, still, basically, this idea that African-Americans are serving in combat and serving quite well. But if you go over one slide, you will see the reality for most African-Americans in the military during World War II. Uh, the main thing is inferiorness. Nothing was equal. They were given much worse resources. Uh, yes, they said separate but equal exists in the military. That did not really occur whatsoever. Uh, for instance, if you're a sick or injured black soldier, you went to a segregated hospital uh, which was not as good. Uh, you know, if you're a black physician, you only treated military personnel, you were not allowed to treat civilians. And also most of the time, uh, white soldiers would not want to see you. Uh, if you are forever, if, for instance, if you are a black officer, uh, generally you are not allowed in the officer's club. Uh, that is something on every military base where basically officers, they don't have to be with the enlisted men. They have a little bit of separatism. Uh, that's something very big in the military is the idea of rank and order. And if you're an officer, you shouldn't have to be around with the grunts. Uh, however, they don't have black officers clubs. Basically, black officers were not allowed to do. Uh, likewise, they were not able to use the base store. The, basically, officers generally have access to better equipment and better stuff uh, at base stores. Uh, black officers were not allowed that as well. Uh, something I always talk about is the fact that German prisoners of war were treated better than the black guards guarding them. Uh, I've mentioned this a million times. This is the, the one that really gets to me is, um, you know, in, in places like Louisiana and Mississippi, where they have these German prisoners of war camps, it's not unusual for black guards to take them out in chain gangs to, you know, just work them, kind of do some convict lease with Nazis, like honest to God Nazis. And when it came time for, like, lunch, when it came time for lunch, uh, generally the whoever hired them would, like, send them out to a restaurant. And so basically the German POWs were allowed to go inside, sit down at the table, uh, if there's air conditioning, sit in the air conditioning, whereas the black guards guarding them, you know, honest to God, U.S. military soldiers 
have to go around back and eat outside. Like only be served at the back door of the of the of the kitchen. Uh, that's about as blatant as you can get. Still, you do have about a million black soldiers serving during World War II. Uh, a lot of different things they get involved with. A lot of different things they get involved with. Uh, still, there are some different, you know, protests uh, about what the military is doing about this. Uh, very often, black leaders are mobilizing to try to, like, improve uh, the world for black soldiers, basically, you know, resist all this inequality. They do have some, uh, they do have some dialogues with the U.S. government. Not, not too, too much, though. Uh, the NAACP, for instance, urges a letter-writing campaign to the U.S. president, uh, uh, Franklin Roosevelt, basically urging him to do even more. Yes, you know, you did Order 8802. That was great. Please do more. Uh, for instance, William Hastings, who is part of the uh, Black Cabinet, he actually resigns as part of this. He feels that um, Franklin Roosevelt is taking the black vote for granted. Uh, women, too, or I should also mention, women, too, are trying to get involved in the military. Uh, black women are often working in the military in various roles. Uh, white women are also working, too. Still, you do have a lot of discrimination towards black women in the military, particularly in terms of nurses. Uh, you do have black nurses in this time period. However, they're not allowed by the Army and the Navy. Um, they're not allowed to be in. Yes, they're able to meet with Eleanor Roosevelt, who's a sympathetic ear, but in, in general, uh, African-American women uh, were not allowed to serve as nurses in the U.S. military and Navy. That being said, though... Um, there is kind of a very slow beginning to military desegregation in World War II. Very slow. There's a lot of protest, and the main thing is the demands of labor. Pretty much it gets to the point where basically the military, I mean, World War II is a very destructive war, most destructive war in human history. Uh, it needs a lot of resources. It needs a lot of manpower. And as the war went on, they just needed more people to fight. You know, they, racism can kind of only begin when you're not under like serious, serious demands. And honestly, the Navy, the military needed it. Uh, the Navy is the first to kind of let more black people do stuff. Uh, there's been a long history of like stevedores and stuff, but now they're allowing black people to become seamen and sailors. Uh, the Marine Corps, however, I should mention the Marine Corps does not. The Marine Corps is famously segregated forever, forever. Like the Marine Corps until relatively, well, it's after World War II, the Marine Corps is like, we don't allow black people, period. Like, it's only whites only in the Marine Corps. Uh, the Army, Navy, and Nurse Corps, they do kind of change their mind on black nurses uh, in 45, later in the war. As you know, as the war goes on, people, the demands get higher and higher. Now, one group you definitely probably know about and probably want to know more about is the Tuskegee Airmen. Uh, they are the most visible in the Army Air Force. Remember, the Air Force is not a separate military unit in this time period. It's still part of the Army. Uh, they're a pursuit squadron. Basically, they're the ones who help um, escort bombers uh, on their bombing runs. Uh, they're mainly involved in Italy. They mainly solve in West Africa, not West Africa, in North Africa and Italy. Uh, they are all black men. They're not all Tus from Tuskegee. They are not all from Tuskegee. They're just all these black men. Uh, they are training, however, at Tuskegee Airfield, which is in Alabama. And actually, they do very well. They do very well. And I should mention, I, I mentioned this before, but... An airplane is probably the most complex piece of military machinery in this time period, and now they're allowing black people to serve as pilots. Uh, there were some black pilots before, I should definitely mention that, not of the military, but just black civilian pilots, uh, black crop dusters, things like that. 
And they really lean upon this for uh, the training for these pilots. Also, with an airplane, uh, there's mechanics. You know, you have to make the airplane fly. Uh, generally, the pilots are not the ones who, who tinker on the airplane to make sure it works. So they also have to train black mechanics. That's another thing that they have to get doing. Uh, you know, as you can see right there, you see a picture of some of the Tuskegee Airmen. Um, you know, yes, the, some of their white officers, I should mention they had white officers. They didn't think that black people were capable of, you know, doing this sort of thing. Yet they have a very distinguished service record uh, in doing escort missions, uh, helping, helping bombers get to their places and make sure bombers don't get shot down as they do their bombing runs. What's interesting is when the Tuskegee Airmen get to Italy and get to France, uh, they're exposed, kind of like the 369th the Harlem Hellfighters are, to a world outside of the South. They experience a place in Europe that views them solely as Americans. Uh, not solely as Americans, but Americans first and foremost, not necessarily as black. I mean, his, uh, Europe does have its own not great history with race and racism. Don't get it, don't get it twisted. However, they're primarily treated as Americans. They don't have to be in segregated places in places like Italy and France. Uh, the, the countrymen there, the, the people, you know, the Italians, the civilians, they treat them as Americans. They don't treat them as black. They're like, oh, yeah, you're American, whatever. They, 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 they link them together with other Americans. So this kind of, you know, for a lot of these air people, this is the first time they've ever been outside of, like, segregation or outside of Jim Crow. And they realize there's more to it. Uh, there's more of a sense of, like, dignity and self-worth. And unlike World War I, where basically when they come back, there's a real backlash against black soldiers. Um, somebody like Douglas Connor says basically, yeah, we're not going back to business as usual. That's one of the things that really brings about the civil rights movement is the experience of the black soldiers in World War II, which kind of formed the basis of what is the civil rights movement. They're the, not even the elder statesmen, they're the middle-aged statesmen of the civil rights movement. I mean, they're just talking about their army experience 20 years beforehand. So honestly, they'd be about my age, which, God, that makes me feel old. But, you know, these are guys who'd be in their late 30s, early 40s by the time the civil rights movement comes around. They're still very young men. They're still very active. Uh, they're really the, the driving force behind the civil rights movement. And a lot of it comes through the experience of World War II and honestly, the successes of World War II. Uh, the fact that, you know, they do get rid of uh, military, uh, sorry, the segregation and defense hiring. You know, they are having black soldiers serve as pilots. Uh, some start being officers. Yes, it's problematic, but it's still something of this idea that we're not going back to the the way it was. Uh, likewise, what's going on in the home front? Well, the double V campaign is doing pretty well. Uh, yes, they are fighting against the Axis, but they are also fighting against discrimination. Uh, black workers, as I mentioned before, they are going from the farm to the factory very quickly. Uh, this is not as quite as big as the Great Migration, but a lot faster than the Great Migration. And a lot more involving the West than the Great Migration. The Great Migration involves places like Detroit, uh, you know, Chicago. Uh, this migration is like Los Angeles. It's like Oakland. It's uh, Seattle. Seattle's black population goes up 10 times as much. Portland, the same thing as that. This is like a West Coast thing. A uh, lot more African-Americans getting these good, you know, working jobs, manufacturing jobs. And actually, some of them are union. Some of them are union. Uh, union membership does grow open during this time period. Uh, some black people are able to join the union. Uh, that does not end racism within the union, though. 
even though black people are allowed to join the union, they find out pretty quickly they might not be necessarily be getting paid the same as much. They're oftentimes shut out of leadership jobs as well. Uh, let's see. You don't need to worry about that. Uh, also, black women get involved, too, quite a bit. Uh, Rosie the Riveter, you've probably seen that. Uh, Rosie the Riveter, most of the time, was actually black. <laughs> it was usually a black lady. Uh, black women get hired much, much more during the war effort. Uh, places like Houston and um, New Orleans start hiring black women in manufacturing jobs. Uh, they're paid pretty well. They're paid comparable to white women. Uh, still a little bit less than men. But still, you know, because of the demand for workers, they're you know kind of relaxing some of the hiring practices. Uh, same thing because of Order 8802 and uh, the FEPC. Uh, companies are hiring much, much more black women. Are there race riots? Sure, there's some race riots during this time period. Um, but uh, there are, are some. Not as many as after World War I, though. Uh, there are some... Uh, not as big as what's going to come later on in Watts or Detroit, but still, it's it's there is some contention. Uh, however, most people are are focused much more on the uh, experience of the war. You also have things like the Zoot Suit riots in Los Angeles and the parts of the West Coast. That's mainly against Mexican Americans, but you also have uh, African Americans getting caught up in that. Um, ask me in class about the Zoot Suit riots. So after the war, after the war, this is another thing I like talking about is the GI Bill. Uh, the GI Bill is a big one. The GI Bill is a big one. This is probably the most... Uh, when we talk about like pieces of legislation that are just universally popular in the United States, this is like the top three. Uh, this and probably the Civil Rights Act and the Voting Rights Act are probably the most popular pieces of legislation. Uh, the GI Bill, full name of the GI Bill of Rights, or the Service and Readjustment Act, basically it's going to be after the war's over. Uh, this is giving a ton of stuff to various uh, veterans. Pretty much, it's it changes American society pretty much more than anything else. If you want to talk about the post-war prosperity or the fact that the living standard of the United States goes way up after the war, uh, because most men during this time period do serve in the war, uh, black, white, whatever. Tons of people serve in the war. Basically, the veterans of the war, now that the war is kind of getting to a close, uh, they're being told that they're going to be given a lot of stuff. A lot of stuff. Uh, they get guaranteed loans, like very low interest rate loans, up to $2,000 to do whatever you want with it. Uh, business loans or a mortgage um, can be done as well. Uh, they actually provide mortgages for soldiers. Uh, business loans are given at very, very low percentage rates. Uh, for instance, my grandfather, and my grandfather was not black, he was white, but uh, my grandfather started a business with his GI Bill loan. And I can guarantee you he paid a lot more in taxes and payroll from that business he started than the government ever put into it. Same thing with college tuition. This is the big one. Basically, the GI Bill, and this is still kind of done. If you're a soldier, if you're in the National Guard, you know, the, Uncle Sam's going to pay for your college. Uh, this is where it kind of comes about. Before this time, and I've mentioned before, college was something seen for the very wealthy. It was something seen as like a very elite thing. However, the GI Bill really democratizes college. Pretty much all sorts of people now are able to go to college. This is good for the college because you have more people going to colleges. More colleges get built. For instance, Nichols State uh, gets built in 1948, I believe. And that is clearly a GI Bill school because, you know, there's basically veterans around this area who want to go to school. And that's literally why Nichols comes to, 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 uh, to existence. 
Uh, the federal government made so much money off of this. I mean, because if you get more education and start a business, you're going to pay more in taxes. So yes, they're giving away some money to the federal uh, to the veterans. Uh, they're getting so much more of it back. This all seems wonderful. The problem is black veterans don't get that. Uh, black veterans, th- this is one of those times where it's not necessarily the federal government's fault. It's just racism's fault. Um, basically, they are not getting a, their fair share. Theoretically, black soldiers are allowed to get the same benefits of the GI Bill, but there's a whole bunch of uh, things that go along with it, which, uh, you know, on, on their surface don't sound bad, but then you're going to be like, oh, dang it, this is 100% screwing over black people. Uh, for instance, uh, most black veterans do not get their loans for a house. They don't get a loan for a house. For instance, Mississippi in 1946 apply, uh, approves 3,000 loans for homes for veterans. Um, only two go to African Americans. Why? Well, redlining. Remember, the federal government doesn't want to give loans if they don't think they're going to get their investment back. If, God forbid, they have to default, even though this, the interest is like less than a percent, uh, if they have to default, they want to make sure they get their money back, and pretty much there are areas where they just won't give a home loan to. Pretty much black areas. Which, in a place like Mississippi, is the only place where black people are allowed to live. So they don't get those loans. Likewise, for tuition. Uh, you can get tuition to a school that's fully accredited. The problem is, most schools that accept African Americans, like in the South, are not fully accredited. So, for instance, in Louisiana, uh, you could go to LSU, which was didn't allow black students until the late 60s, uh, but you could not go to Southern or uh, Grambling on your GI Bill scholarship because they were not considered fully accredited. So, you could go to Harvard, I guess, but, like, not everybody has the grades to go to Harvard or wants to go to Harvard. Frankly, most people want to hang around fairly close to home for college. And so that's what ends up happening with the GI Bill, is that African-Americans don't have the same upward mobility as their white counterparts. Uh, that's another thing that you're going to see come into play when we get into the civil rights movement, is basically the experience of the GI Bill. Still, the other thing that really comes about because of the post-war period is a whole bunch of new protest groups. As I mentioned, you know, the, these soldiers, these people who fought in, the great, in World War II, these people involved in the Double V campaign, they are not old by the time the civil rights movement comes around. They're, they're still very young people. I mean, 30s or 40s, which sounds like dinosaurs to you, I know, you young whippersnappers. But, oh, my dogs are barking. That's okay. Uh, the NAACP comes about. Uh, it's already come about. It, ex- it expands a bunch. Uh, it go it increases ninefold. You have about 50,000 members in 1940. By the end of the war, you have 450,000 members. Uh, much, a lot of those are in the South, by the way. A lot of those are in the South. In addition, you have groups like the Southern Regional Council and the Congress of Racial Equality. Uh, they're going to become very involved in the civil rights movement. Also, uh, women's political councils get more involved. And even black college students, you know, uh, those black college students who are able to use their GI Bill money, uh, they are going to white schools primarily. Some are able to finagle the system to go to HBCU, but not too many. Uh, they're they're older than your traditional college student. They are much more inclined to be a little bit more adamant because hey, they serve in the military. Uh, transition to peace. Transition to peace. Uh, a lot of the gains made by black men and women were wiped away. Uh, you know. Basically, once the war was over, no more big fat government contracts, factories go back to hiring just white people. 
Uh, the armed forces do demilitarize. That's something that happens after every war. And the factories return to the discriminatory hiring. Still, it was a long enough period that really sets the stage for the civil rights movement. Basically, they realize what's going to happen here. And the African-American community is ready to get involved with more stuff. Uh, let's talk about the Cold War for a little while. We're going to talk about the Cold War kind of for a while because it is kind of important. Not kind of important. It is very important to talk about the Cold War. Thing you have to realize about the Cold War, it's all about anti-communism. Uh, basically, the U.S. wants to contain communism, stop the spread of communism. Uh, we do this by increasing federal aid. Uh, basically, the military is getting a lot bigger, even though in peacetime. And we start giving a lot of foreign aid, a lot of money. Now, the reason I mentioned the Cold War is that the Cold War is very important as a backdrop for the civil rights movement. Um, it is very unlikely that we would have had the civil rights movement in the manner that it did occur without the external pressure of the Cold War, uh, pressuring the United States to actually do something about civil rights. Uh, that's one of the reasons why you actually have uh, long-term changes happening in the civil rights movement, not just because of the organization, but the United States as a whole felt that it was pressured to make changes for civil rights because of the Cold War. Basically, uh, one of the most common, predominant uh, propaganda pieces against the United States by the uh, Soviets was that the United States was not great for people who weren't white. Uh, you know, they could tell these countries in Africa or South America, third world countries, uh, you know, each, the Soviets and the United States were vying for influence over. The Soviets could tell these countries, hey, if the United States treats like black people and not white people in, the, in their own country, who are their own citizens, just awfully, what makes you think they're going to treat you even better? So I just want you to think about that when we talk about the civil rights movement next week. Um, I'm not going to give that too, too much uh, attention during the actual civil rights lectures. I'll be focusing more on the movement itself. But you need to deeply understand that as what's going on in the background for the civil rights movement. Uh, du Bois and Ralph Bunchy, they're, they're really trying to, uh, you know, get more radical in terms of what they're going to do about uh, American uh, foreign policy, uh, what America's doing in more world affairs. Uh, du Bois in particular, he becomes very, very critical of American policy, uh, much more into pan-Africanism, which is ironic because he was such a, a hater of Garvey back in the day. Still, he, he becomes more and more convinced as his life goes on as we get into the uh, 50s and 60s. And I should mention, Dubois lives until the 1960s. He, he dies in the mid-60s, and he's active, very active in civil rights issues up until his dying day. But his later years, he's not fully communist, but he's definitely more socialist in that, you know, uh, the United States really doesn't have much for African Americans, and that African Americans need to be keenly aware of the plight of Africans. Uh, Bunchy, on the other hand, he is trying to work within the American system, unlike Dubois. Uh, he's a scholar. He's an expert on Africa. Uh, part of the delegation that drafted the UN Charter. He's also the first African-American Nobel Peace Prize um, recipient. So he, on the other hand, finds basically that African-Americans have a lot to offer Africa. Um, Africans, in fact, should look to African-Americans about what they should do, how they should conduct themselves. Uh, he thought that African-Americans could be a model of, for the rest of the world about what Africans and other black folks could act like. Uh, Anti-communism at home, uh, this is pretty much pretty straightforward. Um, you know, basically there's the, anybody who's considered an outsider or a different or another was greatly attacked, which, as we said, is, is nothing very new in American uh, discourse. What is different is just the intensity of it. 
uh, because of you know the Cold War, because of the fear of things like nuclear re- nuclear war and you know nuclear retaliation. Uh, there's a much more sense of urgency in combating the communists, union leaders, things like that, uh, civil rights people. Basically, they, they, the United States or the United States establishment fears that isn't just like, oh, they're going to you know, take over our country. It's they're going to kill us all because of nuclear war. Uh, you know, that's why you have Joseph McCarthy getting involved. Uh, likewise, Dubois is actually indicted for one of these things uh, for fear of being a communist subversive. His charges were actually dropped. But still, um, not a lot of African-American leaders defended him, mainly because they were afraid of being linked as communists themselves. That is something that's going to be very, very long-lasting within the civil rights movement and also in criticism of the civil rights movement. Uh, Robeson, for instance, is one of these uh, victims of the, of, the, of, the, of the whole, you know, uh, anti-communist Red Scare, um, all this hysteria. Uh, during the 1930s, he does work with the Communist Party. He does work with the Communist Party. Um, he is never actually a member. He's never actually a member, but he does work alongside the Communist Party, trying to do things about anti-racism. Remember, as we discussed in class the other day, uh, the Communist Party and African Americans, they, they were more like a, a means to an end. I think, I think Sterling said it was just crashing on the couch. This is not a long-term relationship. Robeson does, you know, challenge things like white supremacy and segregation, absolutely. Uh, the problem is, um, after 1939, when, like, um, when Stalin makes his pact with, with, uh, with Hitler, a lot of communists, particularly American communists, become very disillusioned with the Soviets. Uh, they think the Soviet Union is not going to be uh, the best for African Americans, you know, they're willing to work with fascists and a literal white supremacist. Uh, granted, this is a very short-lasting thing. Uh, ultimately, the alliance between Stalin and Hitler is broken. Uh, but Robinson's interesting because he actually sticks with Soviet communism. He says, you know what, I'm not a member of the Communist Party, but I really believe something good's going to happen to it. Um, you know, this is going to be the best way that America can move forward for African Americans. Uh, this gets him under a lot of attack during the Red Scare for these clear reasons. Now, is he a communist? No. Does he have communist sympathies? Yes. Uh, much stronger than most African Americans who worked in the Communist Party during this time. Likewise, the World Congress of 49, a communist organization meeting, uh, he said that, quote, it was unthinkable for black people to fight for the United States. Uh, he said it was unthinkable for black people to fight for the United States. Ironically, within a couple of years, African Americans will be fighting in the Korean War in desegregated units for the United States. Um, still, he, he's one of these victims of, uh, of these anti-communist witch hunts. He's pretty much, like, totally, totally uh, ostracized by both the black community and the rest of the United States for what he does. Now, where we start getting changes on the federal level comes from a fairly weird place. Uh, it comes from a fairly, fairly weird place. Uh, Harry Truman is the vice president for uh, Franklin Roosevelt for only a couple months because he's chosen in the 1944 election, uh, mainly to stow up uh, support from Southern Democrats. Remember, FDR never has the greatest support of Southern Democrats. They, they, they kind of hold their nose and vote, vote for him. Uh, he's viewed as too sympathetic for civil rights. Uh, Harry Truman was picked because he is a Southern Democrat. He's from Missouri. 
Uh, I also mentioned he was a member of the Ku Klux Klan in the 1920s for like a week. He wasn't even really a member. He attended a meeting, and somebody else paid their membership dues. And when he found out that they weren't for Jews, um, you know, he was like, eh, nah, I don't, don't want to be a part of this organization. Uh, still, he's seen as by a lot of Southern Democrats as one of theirs, uh, somebody who would probably be, um, he's a bit more moderate. You know, he doesn't like the excesses of the New Deals. And he actually seems pretty moderate on civil rights. He's not too extreme, but he's not too anti kind of middle of the road. Uh, that's what most people think is going to happen with him. That's not what happens with him, but that's what they think. He's also not really expected to win. Uh, Thomas Dewey, who'd run against uh, FDR in 44, was running again in 1948. Uh, Thomas Dewey was expected to win. Thomas Dewey was a Republican. He was the Republican Attorney General of New York State, back when New York State was a solid Republican state. Uh, he was very much expected to win. This was, you know, this was this would have been the fifth straight election won by a Democrat. Uh, generally, in the United States, if you look at U.S. history, it's mainly Republican presidents with only a few Democrats uh, here or there. Still, um, th- that's not really going to be uh, too much of an issue. And another problem is Wallace, uh, Henry Wallace. He's kind of a person to the left of Truman. Uh, He was uh, Roosevelt's vice president from 1941 to 1945. And that's going to be kind of interesting because now we have two vice presidents of Roosevelt kind of running against each other. And Wallace is coming from the left. Uh, Wallace is much more, much, much, much more liberal in, in terms of civil rights. He wants much more radical changes for civil rights. He runs on the Progressive Party. Uh, which is actually backed by the Communist Party. Uh, the Communist Party supports the Progressive Party. And it, it's it's kind of interesting in that because Truman is like, okay, I might actually lose this election. I mean, I wasn't really expected to win this election, but Wallace is going to take away what few votes I might get uh, from black voters. Remember, most black voters aren't that crazy about Truman by any stretch of the imagination. Uh, they're kind of wary of him in 1948. That changes in, in time because, as you're going to see, Truman does a lot of stuff for our civil rights. But still, Truman is seen as kind of a loose cannon. Not a loose cannon, but just kind of an unknown. Uh, this really upsets the far right wing of the Democratic Party, uh, the, the segregationist people. Uh, ultimately, Strom Thurmond, Strom Thurmond, who was a longtime uh, South Carolina senator, senator from South Carolina. He's actually a governor in this time period. He becomes senator for South Carolina till he's in his hundreds, uh, legitimately. He's he's still at it in the 1990s. He's like 100 years old in the Senate. Uh, probably the most famous segregationist. Well, not the most famous segregationist, but a very famous segregationist. Uh, he runs on his own party. Uh, he basically, uh, the Dixiecrat Party, it's like the Southern Democrat Party, I believe they call themselves like the, gosh, what's their actual name? Like the State's Rights Party or something innocuous sounding. Uh, they, they call themselves, everybody calls them the Dixiecrats, basically uh, Democrats from Dixie. Uh, he runs uh, on a third party. This is one of the last times you actually have like a strong third party support. Um, ironically, the strongest third parties we've had in the United States who actually get electoral college votes have been segregationists. Uh, George Wallace later on in the 60s and 70s was going to run as a segregationist. But Strom Thurmond runs in 1948. And actually, he gets multiple states' electoral college votes. He gets his home state of South Carolina. He gets Alabama. He gets Mississippi. And, of course, he gets Louisiana. Uh, That said, though, Truman weirdly enough wins. Truman weirdly enough wins. 
Uh, he wins the Electoral College. This is a very, very close election. Um, the vote was pretty much split. The vote was pretty much split. And basically, um, Dewey, who was trying to appeal to African-Americans because he's the Republican candidate at this time, African-Americans who could vote were still kind of voting Republican, even though they voted for FDR for quite a while. Uh, Truman is able to win the election. You might see the very famous picture, Dewey versus uh, Dewey defeats Truman, Dewey defeats Truman. And, you know, Harry Truman's holding it up and laughing because that's not what happens. Harry Truman actually beat Dewey. This is kind of a turning point for uh, the Democratic Party. They basically realize, hey, you know, we can win an election without appealing to, like, the hardline, like, racist. You know, without appealing to the hardline segregationist, we can actually win an election. And you actually have the Democratic Party start to become a little bit more moderate. And you have the far, you know, segregationist, racist wing of the Democratic Party become uh, less, less enamored of the Democratic Party. Uh, this is one of those times where you might have heard about, like, the party swapping in American politics. Uh, that's a very simplistic way to think of it. Um, parties don't change. Constituencies do. But this is one of those times where ever the, the Southern, white, segregationist, racist um, men of the Democratic Party are kind of uh, becoming not as inclined for the Democratic Party. And later on, as we're going to see under Nixon and ultimately Reagan, they start joining the Republican Party. Not saying all Republicans are racist. I'm just saying that this particular constituency swaps parties. Okay, so once Harry Truman becomes uh, president, he does something pretty interesting. He issues Executive Order 9981, uh, done July 26, 1948. Uh, yes, it's mainly done for the Cold War purposes. Cold War purposes, Czechoslovakia is not doing great. Uh, Czechoslovakia is about to go over to the Soviets. In fact, it does go over to the Soviets. Uh, there's more fear of a war with the Soviet Union. We need to militarize. Also, we need to kind of uh, take the fangs out of Soviet propaganda. Take the fangs out of Soviet propaganda, saying that the United States is indeed racist. Uh, plus, there was also the threat of black men and women refusing to serve. We talked about that with Robison, saying that African-Americans would never serve the U.S. military because it's a segregated place. So basically, basically what this does is that this... Basically, it says explicitly that uh, it is mandated equality of treatment and opportunity for all persons in the armed services without regard to race, color, religion, or national origin. Basically, anybody can serve in the military in any unit. This desegregates the armed forces. This is desegregates the armed forces, uh, not fully implemented until the Korean War or the Korean conflict, whatever you want to call it. Uh, that's where you have your first real desegregated armed forces, pretty much across the board. Uh, your, your last black units are dismantled by 48 in the end of the Korean War. Uh, you still don't have too many black officers, uh, nor black officers commanding white soldiers. Uh, that will come in place much more in the Vietnam War. In the Vietnam War, you're going to have much more black officers and black officers commanding white troops. But still, the Korean conflict, Korean War, this is the first time the military is desegregated across the board. Pretty much anybody of any color, you know, national origin, whatever, could serve in any part of the armed forces. Uh, notice it did not say gender. Notice it did not say gender. It's still saying it's male only. Uh, particularly in combat roles, that kind of gets relaxed later on, but we'll talk about that more later. Uh, if you can see the picture, there you go. 
Uh, you know, this is part of the uh, another part of the double V campaign. So you have here lies Jim Crow saying that the military, saying that the army, saying that the world wars and later Korea is going to cause um, equality to erupt. In conclusion, okay, this is a very dynamic period for black activism. Uh, when we're talking about the you know World War II and getting into the early Cold War, this is a major time for African Americans really to like get their place in the sun and really to set the foundation for the later civil rights movement. You know, by, by something like the Double V campaign, linking victory abroad but also victory at home, uh, you're having a much more defiant, strong-willed, and honestly successful movement for African-Americans to gain civil rights. You know, A. Philip Randolph, just the threat of something like the uh, March on Washington is able to get um, Franklin Roosevelt to sign Executive Order 8802, which uh, bans uh, segregation and discrimination in hiring practices for defense contracts. This actually gets African-Americans some money, moves them into different places. It sets another standard for what's going to be the later civil rights movement. Uh, same thing for World War II, serving overseas and things like the Tuskegee Airmen really changes the world for these black service members and women, honestly, servicemen and women. They're, they're experiencing a world that is, you know, free of Jim Crow. I'm not saying that France and Italy and stuff are free of uh, racism. They're not. They have their own racism as usual, of course. But it, it's a different way. And they said, you know what? There's a different way of living. You know, we might not have to be second class citizens. It also gives them a much more sense of defiance. Uh, this World War II generation, who, as I've mentioned a couple times now, is only in their late 30s, early 40s by the time the Civil Rights Movement rolls around. Uh, they're, you know, the young core of what is going to be like these infrastructures for something like the Civil Rights Movement. And also the Cold War. The Cold War is creating a place that is like really hostile for the U.S. in general. And also it can be very... Um, very harsh towards uh, people who don't think the way the U.S. does, you know, people with supposed communist sympathies. But also, weirdly enough, it also forces the United States to be more accommodating to civil rights issues. Uh, you know, pe yes, people who dissent do find their uh, sanctuary. NAACP is finding some success, absolutely. But you would not have the civil rights movement in the context that it does happen. Uh, and to the manner of success it ultimately does have without something like the Cold War pushing the country to do that. Uh, so with that, that's going to end it for World War II and the Cold War, early Cold War. Uh, next week, we're going to have multiple lectures about the civil rights movement. A lot of things we've got to talk about because it's very important. Plus, you do have a paper on it, so I want to give you a lot of things you can maybe latch on to. So with that, this is Dr. Tully for History 311. Have a great day.